All right, you guys ready? You getting your final little breakfast plate over there? We are going to be studying 1 Samuel chapter 22 today. If you're keeping up. And uh, full disclosure here, I have a cold. So I'm trying to avoid touching people. I don't have COVID. I took a COVID test. But I know that anytime somebody seems sick, you assume they're a dirty leper. And I am not a dirty leper. I mean, I kind of am a dirty leper, but, but not with COVID. So, but if you want to avoid me giving you a cold, you might just keep, your, keep a wide berth. So, everybody doing okay? Yes. Holding up. Um, okay, so here's the thing. We're going to be studying 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to continue our series on the life of David. But we almost didn't. And I'm going to, I'm going to make a suggestion to you. Um, next week, I'm going to take a quick pause in our study in 1 Samuel to take a look at a new product from the Bible Project that I think is really terrific, and I want to like, advocate for it. Um, and I was going to give you a demo of this product today, but then I decided just to wait a week and finish our First Samuel thing. Um, but you might want to, and in fact, I hope that you will, get on your iPhone or Android and download, go to the App Store and download um, the new app. It's just called the Bible Project. Have you seen this thing yet, Bob? They did a video about that was coming out. So um, essentially, it's a Bible reading pl- plan. Um, there's, a, there's a ton of stuff. It, the, if you guys are not familiar with the Bible Project, these guys produce these five, six, seven-minute videos. They're the best thing I've ever seen. They are this, one second, they, they combine um, fantastic theology, just really solid doctrine. The primary teacher is a guy named Tim Mackey, and he is, I've, I've just, he's always, he just does a fantastic job. He's He's always on point, very thoughtful, very engaging. But there's a lot of guys that are great Bible teachers, okay? Guys like Tim Mackey, there's a million of those. But Tim Mackey is combined with this guy named John Collins. And I really think, as much as I favor teaching the brilliance of the Bible Project, is this guy John Collins who is a fantastic artist. And so they combine the totally on point theological mind of Tim Mackey with an extraordinary visual communication capacity of John Collins. And the, the, the one plus one is not two in this situation. It is like these guys are so on point. And so their videos are great. You can watch these little five, six, seven minute videos on a million different topics. And what they've done in their, in their app is they've combined, all, they've just kind of given you access to all of their videos, to all these short things. They also have a podcast that's a longer form, more like an hour-long conversation of the two of them. Sometimes there's a third person in that conversation, and that stuff's great. So on the one hand, their app is combining all of their stuff all into one spot. But more interestingly, they've added a new track um, that they call, what do they call it, Kelly? The Journey or something? The Journey. Um, and essentially what, they've, what they're creating is a through the Pentateuch in a year, right? So... Five books of the, of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books, they're going to walk through all of that um, and uh, give you all kinds of fantastic teaching. And those five books, that Pentateuch is the foundational reality of the Scriptures. Um, and if you wanted to walk through those five books with these guys over the course of a year, it would be just absolutely gold, okay? So next week, Kelly and I are going to explain to you how the whole thing works, um, and we'll do a little bit of a demonstration of it. But if you want to download the app, just get the Bible Project on your iPhone or the Bible Project on Android, and um, we'll, we'll explain to you kind of how it works next week. 
Cool? All right. So let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 22. You got your Bibles open? You ready? We're studying narrative. Guess what's the unit of narrative? What's the, like, what's the logical chunk in a, nar- in a narrative story, whether it's a movie or a book? What's, the, what's a chunk within narrative? You know? You would know this intuitively if you're watching a movie. Plots? Uh, plots broader than that. Chunk. Well, you might have said it, Tommy. Scene. That's exactly right. Were you going to add any, Was that you going to say, Kelly? Scene, okay? So when you watch a movie, you know that like, the camera changes and now we're in a new scene. Here we're having a conversation in a coffee shop and then the scene changes and now we're out, se- out here on this field and it's a new location, it's a new scene. And so when you read narrative, it's helpful to just to notice the divisions between the scenes. Okay, there's a group of people in a particular place talking about something and they do that for a while and then the next paragraph suddenly, now we're someplace else and new people are talking. So just watch those scenes. There's basically, and sometimes scenes can be like, Sub-scenes within a thing. We're in the same room, but now the camera pans over from these two to these two. That's not really a scene change, but it's quasi-scene change. Here in our text, there's basically five scenes in this chapter. And so we're going to look at them one at a time. And as you read narrative, just, just notice that. Just watch. Okay, here's one unit, one chunk. Okay? We'll do them a chunk at a time. First uh, Samuel 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Okay, first of all, what, what just happened in chapter 21? What led us up to this moment? Can you go back? It's been like two weeks because we weren't here last week. So two weeks ago, what was going on? Wait, I'm hearing two things. Okay, Robin first. David had fled Saul and went to Gath, and with that king, and then ultimately started acting like he lost his mind. Yep. Excellent. So David is on the run. He had been with Saul, and you know, Jonathan shot the air and said, get out of here. And then he flees, and he's just trying to find a place to be safe. David is he's fleeing for his life, trying to be safe. And did you want to add anything, Kat? Well, then he went to Amalek, the priest, and got the priestess friend. That's right. That's right. And so that whole, we get this setup. or one of the things that he does is he goes to this priest and he gets this bread that he's not really allowed to eat, but maybe it's not that big of a deal. We're not quite sure about that. Jesus says it's kind of okay. Um, and he, he takes Goliath's sword and, and, and he's off. But he's still, he's fleeing. He's, he's going to foreign nations. He's going to get things and he's just trying to stay alive. And then now he moves into the cave of Adullam, but he's not alone. How would you characterize the people that he has gathered around him in the cave of Adullam? Mercenaries, what did you say? Castoffs. Castoffs. That's nice. His family. What's that? Family. Okay, his family too. We're going to see his family in the next scene. Okay, his family is going to be prominent in the next scene right here. But right now, this is a bunch, it is a bunch of ruffians, right? This, the way the NIV says it is it calls them those that are in distress, in debt, or discontented. What do you have in your Bible? Discontented. Discontented, malcontents, okay. Wait, what is it? Bitter in soul. Bitter in soul, okay? So this is not the most savory group of people, right? This is King David, and he's gathered around him. His followers, this natural people that are like with him, they're all a bunch of <laughs> low life. They're a bunch of low lives. Does that remind you of anybody else, any other great leader who's gathered around himself a bunch of dirtbags? That is 
what is it? Robin Hood. It's got the Robin Hood vibe. Yeah, that's going on. <laughs> Who else? It's, it, 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 and it is absolutely, this is very much, this is one of a hundred ways that David anticipates Jesus. When Jesus, the people that Jesus gathers around himself, both when he's alive and walking on the earth, right? And then when he's been raised from the dead and is gathering people from around the nations, it's, uh, it's all the, it's us. It's all the lowly people. There's a great Rich Mullins. You guys know, you guys listen to Rich Mullins' music. He died a long time ago, but he's a fantastic lyricist. And he's got a great song. He has this, uh, I don't know the name of the song, but there's a, there's a lyric in one of his songs that's all about people scorning Jesus. And one of the, one of the laments that is made in the song about Jesus is that the whores all seem to love him. And the drunks propose a toast, right? And that is right on, right? Jesus gathered around himself all these ne'er-do-wells, all of these lowly people that were not so haughty and so arrogant. And then Paul says this. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Paul says this, so insulting. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And Jesus gathers around himself all these ruffians. And Jesus did the same thing. And he invited us to come to the party. Jesus tells a story about a a king who had a feast. But none of the guests wanted to come to the feast. Do you know this story? And so he says, go out into the streets and drag in anybody that you can just get all these losers and bring them to the party. And the punchline of that joke is that we are those losers. We are the ones that he brought, not because we're smarter and prettier and funnier and richer, but because we were needy and he's gathered around himself those. That's the same thing that David is doing, all right? David in a lot of lots of ways is like Jesus. Okay, so he does this, but then watch what he does here. And this is where the family's gonna come in, Cap. Look at verse three. 1 Samuel 22, 3, from there David went to Mizpah and Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, go to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Okay, first of all, why? So we, we saw David earlier go to a foreign kings. We saw this in the previous chapter. Now he's going to Moab. Why would the king of Moab be kind to David, do you think? What's going on with that, John? David's grandmother. Okay, this is an excellent answer. Who is David's grandmother? Is it grandmother or great-grandmother? I get, less, I get lost in the generations, but who was it? Ruth. It's Ruth, right? And so David has some history with, with, the, with the Moabites. He had a Moabite-esque great-grandmother, Ruth. Okay, so that's definitely one possibility. Is this is a hat tip to the whole thing going down with Ruth. Why else do you think? Any, any idea of why Moab would do this? Right, you know, to divide up and pull apart Egypt, I mean, Israel to exploit politically. Yeah, there's that, what, there's some little aphorism that like my enemy's enemy is my friend, right? My and so there may, there may be something to that for sure. Anybody else guesses what's going on? Why does, what does Moab have any interest in this? Uh, Laura Beth? Um, if, he, if the king sees that David is more powerful and he's going to become the king of Israel, it's a future ally. 
Yes. So this is, this is the possibility. If, you, if, if, if he recognizes that, well, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands, that does make sense. If I'm nice to you when you're down, then you might be nice to me when you're up, right? And so there's all those possibilities that might be going on, right? Um, and I don't, I don't have any particular insight into the king of Moab's mind, but all those things are probably in play. It might be the reason that David goes to Moab because of the Ruth connection. Moab might respond favorably because he's a, he just kind of sees kind of which way this tree is leaning and how it could work out for him. And there's also just the truth. You see this several times throughout the Old Testament. It, there tended to be, it tended to be the case that kings would be gracious to people from other lands. Um, uh, part of that, my enemy's enemy is my friend. But there's a whole bunch of instances where, that, where that's the case. And so it's not surprising that Moab would respond favorably, or the king of Moab would respond favorably. But nor is it surprising that Gad is going to step in and put a stop to this. When Gad says, I want you to get out of here, he's not just having him leave the cave of Adullam. He's Gad is actually interfering with this whole alliance going down with Moab. And why would that be the case? Do you have any idea why, um, it, based, on the Old Test, based on Israel's history in the Old Testament, why would Gad jump in and say, yeah, no deal, you don't get to do this? Don't want to entangle it. Yes. Do you, and do you know the history of that? Why do we have no entangle with Moab? Do you know the story there? Could you real quick summarize it? Well, it was, that was the Moabites were brought in to kind of seduce the children of Israel as they were coming in the exodus. That's exactly right. And there's bad news. We, we don't like Moab. Yes, Ruth is from Moab, and so we kind of stutter step on this. But flip, just take a look at this. Go to Deuteronomy 23. I think that's probably what you're thinking of. In Deuteronomy 23, the king of Moab... Well, not the king of Moab, but Moab is like persona non grata for Israel. Check this out. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, I don't know what verse. Uh, where do we want to be? Beginning of it, I guess. Uh, listen to this. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, start at verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. Um, by the way, okay, well, we'll come back to that. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And listen to this. They hired Balaam, the son of Beor of Pethor, and Aram, some other place, to pronounce a curse on you. However, listen to this. The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Here it is, verse 6. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. And that's what David is doing. This foreign entanglement, this kind of like Moab's going to be nice to him. And Gad's like, this is going to go badly. We're not allowed to do that. Knock it off. So what does David do? He's found a place of refuge. He's afraid. He's getting, his, getting chased down by Saul. And then Gad shows up with some Old Testament verse to quell him. What does he do? What do you think he's going to do? He's going to do the right. Is he going to obey Gad or is he going to not? Well, he did. He does. And I think, it's pretty comp- I think it's a pretty interesting thing about David is that he's found a place to be safe. Have you ever been afraid? And then you find a place of safety? And then somebody shows up and says, no, 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 you can't do that? That's a miserable place. You're like, come on, for crying out loud. Like, this is finally working for me. Could you please just step off your legalistic blah, blah, blah. But David doesn't do that. When Gad shows up and says, you can't do this, David yields. And he moves. And I think that's just one more picture of David's surrender to the Lord. You may find yourself in some situation where you have pulled a lever and it's working for you. 
but it's not okay, but it is working. And those are hard things to let go of. But David just stops. He's found a refuge. He's found a place of safety, but he's going to let go of it. And this is where, if you think of the Psalms, what does David say is his refuge? Can you think of this? Say it again, Lily. God is, Psalm 18 is one, look, look at that, Psalm 18, do I have that? I don't know if I wrote it down. Maybe I did. I didn't. But uh, David, no, I did, Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's a challenging thing because you're strong. What, what is your stronghold for you like right now? Could be your job. Could be your bank account. Could be some relationship. So you're secure. Yeah, that thing that makes you, what makes you feel safe at night, Robin? For David, it was, for the moment at least, it was Moab. And it's tough to let that thing go and to really believe. It's not, it was, it's not the money, it was never the money. It's not the relationship, it was never the relationship. That the Lord is my refuge. That's, and, but David believes that, so he's like, all right, off with Moab. And he moves on. David's a beast. And I just remembered, Sherilyn, that I told you I, I was going to call on you, but I forgot to. The movement passed, I'm sorry. Forgot all about that. Okay, so let's keep going. So uh, he's going to move on. He's going to ditch Moab. And look at what happens in verse 6. Keep your eye on Saul, okay? Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul, spear in hand. Dude's always got a spear in his hand. (laughs) It's like his favorite thing. He's just walking around with a spear all the time. And Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on a hill at Gibeah with all of his officials standing around him. And Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all of your fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you've all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, Well, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. And Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. All right, first off, what's our new scene? What's our new setting here, you guys? What is it? Sitting under a tree, under a tamarisk tree, whatever a tamarisk tree is, right? Sitting under a tree on the top of a hill. Helen? I just looked it up because I was inquisitive about the tamarisk tree. Yeah. And it says these trees often, often are used as memorials for great men. It is therefore appropriate that Abraham should honor God by planting a tamarisk. I, it's a memorial of the covenant between two. Saul held court under a tamarisk tree in Gilbert. Yes, okay, so it's interesting that you chase that down so quickly because trees are often thematically significant in the Old Testament. It's a massive theme. Lots and lots of important things happen under trees. Um, where if you, in fact, I th- I, the Bible Project guys do a whole big scene about that. They did a, <coughs> they did a, um, a whole series on the significance of trees, and so I would bet that the Tamarisk tree fits into that broader thing. And that Saul is picking this place of significance because he's probably puffing himself up and acting like a big man. This is maybe the equivalent of having your, you know, it's like the boardroom for the king. You know, he's having this, this big scene here. 
trying to, trying to demonstrate his own authority, his power, and get everybody back in line because as near as he can tell, he's losing the people. We're going to see that Saul believes there's a conspiracy afoot, right? This is what's going down here. First Robin. Saul is a Benjamite. Say it again. Saul is Okay, so okay, that's an interesting observation. So, so Robin says Saul is a Benjaminite. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's got 12 kids. One of them is Benjamin. And Saul comes from the Benjamin tribe. And why do you point that out? Because he's, he's kind of um, comparing what he has done for them. Because he's made them leaders and, you know, over hundreds or thousands. Yeah. And, you know, surely a son of Jesse. Mm-hmm. Not going to be behind you and taking care of you the way I've been taking care of you. That's right. That's what I think. Yes. Now, it's interesting because how does he address, how does the king address the king's men? The leadership. This is the... You can see this as the military leaders. You can see this as the president's cabinet. What does he call them? Benjamin. People of Benjamin. What is he the king of? Israel. The whole thing. Okay, what this is, this is the president's from Virginia. And so he only hires Virginians. Okay, so it's, 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 that's not quite nepotistic, but it's kind of like the second circle of nepotism, right? What's that again? Tribal. Tribalistic. That's good, right? So he's, so he's, He's supposed to be ruling the nation, but he's reserved power for his own cohort, his own family, his own, his own people. And that's just generally a bad idea, right? And you're going to see it. We're going to see it play out. Saul is going to have an increasing... We're going to watch the circle of the conspiracy. It's all in his head. It's just going to spill out. Kind of like what Quig's talking about this morning of, of Herod wants to kill everybody because he thinks everybody's coming to get him. Uh, Saul is going to have the same perspective of like Saul is good and nobody else is trustworthy. He's going to his his, his his leaders are all going to come from Benjamin, and everybody else is going to be like suspect to him. Watch that watch that play out. First John and then Kelly. Oh, did I miss you? Is it too late? Spear in his hand. Saul David isn't the only one that's prey. Saul is prey. Saul is what? Saul is Oh, absolutely, right. And that's why he's got the spear. He's con- as I'm telling you, he is, we're going to see undeniably that, Paul, that, that Saul is growing increasingly paranoid. He's, he's going like, to cir- you know, circle the wagons, have the spear. That's what's going down with him. Kelly Sue? I, I was just going to say the tone of this interaction is really manipulative. He's, he's very much like what well, brings a guest. Yes. He's falling apart. We're watching Saul's descent into madness here. And it's going to just get worse and worse. And the problem is when the guy that's going crazy is the king, he's got more than a spear at his command, right? And it's going to get, it's about to get a whole lot yuckier. Okay, so Benjaminites, all this kind of stuff. We've got a new setting. Um, he's paranoid. He's believing false things. What, do you notice anything... In this passage here, what is it, verse 6 to 10, what's the most absurd thing that he believes? If you just scan through it, maybe we might even differ on this, and that's okay. There may be multiple things, but one thing in this thing strikes me as like completely, completely out of line. What's the, what's the craziest thing you see here? Say it again. He's blaming Jonathan. Well, okay, but it is true. It is true. That Jesse made a, I mean, that, that um, Jonathan made a covenant with the son of Jesse. 
right? Now, it doesn't mean what he thinks it means, but it is, that's true, right? Okay, so everybody's against him, right? So you got this sense of a conspiracy that's growing. We're going to watch that thing spill more and more and more. Absolutely. What else? David is lying in wait to jump him, and he's clearly not. That, that's what I would put as the bullseye of it. Look at it. In ver, what is that? That's also verse 8. None of you is concerned with me. You're telling me that my son has incited my servant. Who, who, is, who is his servant? David. Oh, and by the way, Jonathan told David to lie in wait and kill Saul. That's, that's his claim. My son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. And that right there, his fundamental view of David is that David is just waiting. He's hiding around the corner. The reason you got to have a spear in your hand at all times is because as soon as you walk through that door, David's going to be there to kill you. Okay. Now, if you know the future of this story, the, what these subsequent chapters are going to be, is David lying in wait for Saul? No. Does David have the opportunity to kill Saul? How many times does he explicitly have the ability to jam a spear into his head? Two times. What's the first time? <laughs> David goes into the cave to poop, and David, I'm sorry, Saul goes into the cave to poop, and David's already there, and he's like, man, I could just literally just kill you. And instead, what does he do? He sneaks up to him and cuts off part of his robe. And then when he leaves, he's like, yo, <coughs> if David were lying in wait to kill him, he would have killed him. What's the second time? Snuck into the camp. What? Snuck into the camp, he was in the middle. Yes. So Saul's sleeping out there, and then David goes, and he steals like his jug or something and his spear maybe, something. And again, he could, he could just kill him, but he doesn't. David is absolutely not lying in wait for Saul. And Jesse, I mean, Jonathan certainly has not incited him to lie in wait. But reality is fading. It's just drifting away from Saul. And it's being replaced with his wild imaginations. So I had a friend who used to always talk about vain imaginations. You're vainly imagining things that just are not true. But as long as you're committed to that false picture of reality, reality will recede and you're going to become more and more disconnected. And in Saul's case, more and more dangerous. That's really what I think our, our eye is supposed to capture here. Ruby, Lily? This might be a little bit of a tangent, but where is Jonathan when his dad is accusing him of inciting David to life? That's a great question. We don't, I don't think we get any information about that. So from the time that Jonathan's launching arrows, Jonathan kind of recedes. And so he's back at, back at the headquarters, I guess. But, yeah. yeah, maybe he, maybe John, well, certainly Jonathan has fallen out of favor. And so I'm guessing that Saul's not going to invite Jonathan to come to these meetings anymore because he sees Jonathan as like, Jonathan has become his enemy, which is also crazy. So he's getting buttonholed somehow, but we don't get, we don't get data on that. because yeah, it's, it's funny because they're, you know, then Saul and Jonathan are together in the end. They are in the battle. Gonna, they're going to die together. Yeah, not yet though. Okay, so far so good? All right, so let's keep going. So, once again, we're going to change the setting here. Um, um, oh, no, Doag. We've got to talk about Doag. So, so Doag gives his report. What is, what is Doag's report? What is, he, what is he just, the raw goods, what does he say happens? <coughs> okay, so I've got to tell you, because I have a cold, I can't hear. Like, I need to keep clearing my ears or something. So just be louder than you think you need to be. Helped him, gave him food, gave him the sword. Okay, so he tells a story. Hey, David came in, the priest... You know, inquired of the Lord, gave him the, gave him the bread, gave him Goliath's sword. Okay? Did you want to add anything, Kat? 
that basically it? Okay, now that's just data, and data can always be interpreted. And if you are crazy, you're a lunatic, you're going to interpret that data consistent with your craziness, right? If you're not crazy, then you're going to just kind of take a look at that and see what it is. So what is the, what's the benign, what's the positive interpretation of that? Hospitality. Okay, that the king is being hospitable. Or not the king, but the, the priest is being hospitable. Great. Uh, what, uh, that, that's an interpretation based on the priest. What about, on, what about David? How would you take David's behavior in that if you're just not going insane? Was, what's that? Yeah, he's not, he's not like, he's not like he's going off like, you know, amassing an army to go kill him. It's like the Goliath sword really is his rightfully since he killed that's right, that's right. So it, he, had, he had taken Goliath, he was eating food, he was hungry. And you could even just make the case that he's going to the Lord, right? He's hurting, he's struggling, and so he goes and he inquires of the Lord. These are godly things. There's nothing untoward about this, there's nothing threatening about this, there's nothing bad. However, there's another take. Kelly? But even, even if you set aside Saul's madness, yeah. Yep. I think, I think you're right, that Saul would reasonably infer, well, he, remember, he was mad at the table. When David missed dinner two nights in a row, Saul's like, where is he? What's, he? what's he doing? And the answer is, he's fleeing from you because you keep trying to kill him, right? And so, it, it, no, you're absolutely right that Saul recognizes, okay, David's on the run. But it's unreasonable to assume that he is wicked in his flight or that he is counterattacking, for he truly isn't. Right, but you're absolutely right. He's he's fleeing, and Saul knows that he's fleeing. <laughs> totally, totally true. Okay, but what he thinks? What what does Saul think it means? What's Saul's primary perception of the whole Ahimelech thing, Catherine? It's that he's turning everybody against that, that David is turning everyone else against Saul. Uh, Paranoid. And what I found yeah. was that who did Saul go to? For he went to what? The witch of Endor. Yeah. Yes. It's a Catherine, that's a fantastic observation that when David is in distress, he goes and inquires of the Lord. And when Saul is in distress, he goes to a witch. That's that is an intention that's a great that you catch that the the, the, the narrator wants you to recognize the contrast between the way these two men respond under stress, right? And, the, and by the way, before we're like, of course, David's great and he's awful. Pause real quick. What would your, what would your narrator say? What is your stress response? Like when you're under, does it drive you to the Lord or, do you, or does it drive you to the witches? You know, what does that look like for you? What, what is your, sometimes if you do your Enneagram, it's like, you know, you're a four and under stress, you're a seven, but you become like a nine or whatever. I don't know any of that stuff, but whatever, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's this, if you're this, like, what is your stress response? <coughs> do you go to the witch of Endor? You eat? Is that what you said? Yeah. This food is delicious. Amen, Quig? 
It is delicious. Did you want to say something, Robin? I found it at some point in my life, Lord, that when something bad happened like that, I would want to call and talk to somebody. Yeah. And the Lord reminded me that the only person I needed to go to was him. Yeah. It, so I may not be going to a witch, but I might be, you know, taking my problems and trying to discuss it with other people and figure out their ideas instead of going to the Lord. Amen. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's, it's funny that you would say that because Kelly had an ex-boyfriend, a guy named Richie, bluser, but, um, but, but actually, I remember that from Richie, that he had a very strong sense of like, when he was under distress, his first move is going to be to go to the Lord, right? And I really admire, Richie is not a loser, I mean, relatively, but not actually. And, and I remember and really admired that that was that impulse, because very often our impulse is to, is not to go to the Lord first, you know? So it's a, good, it's a good thing. All right, so Saul's going to look at the data, and he's going to see it. Because remember, he's seeing everything through a distorted lens. Everything confirms him. I knew it! This is a conspiracy. I knew it. And what's going to happen is it's, gonna, it's going to grow. So in 2211, the king sends for the priest Elimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family. That just got worse, by the way. Right? Can you tell it's going to get worse? He goes to get the priest. Like, by the way, bring your dad and all of his kids, bring all the cousins, bring them all in, okay? All, his father's whole family who were priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. They're not next door. They're getting summoned from like 30 miles away so that you get everybody in your whole family and meet me at the tree, okay? So they're all going to take this journey. They're all going to schlep in. And once they all finally get there, you know what we're going to have when we get there? You know? We're going to have a trial is what we're going to have, okay? It's going to be a trial in which the judge and the prosecutor are the same man. That's bad, right? When the judge, when the guy, when the prosecuting attorney also has verdict power, that's bad. And that's, so bring everybody and we're going to have a quick trial. So bring them in, okay? So they show up and Saul says, listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my Lord, he answered. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him? By the way, what's the, what's the, what's the question again? What does he ask? Why did you conspire? Why did you conspire against me? So granting the given that there's a conspiracy afoot, right? Like you see how when the judge is the prosecutor, it's going to go poorly, right? Why have you conspired? Not did you conspire against me? Not is there another way to make sense of this? Not can you explain to me what happened? But why did you conspire against me? That you gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him so that he has rebelled against me today and lies in wait for me as he rebelled against me again and lies in wait for me as he does today. Once again, that's twice now. David is lying in wait. David is lying in wait. Is David lying in wait? He is not. Okay. And Ahimelech answered the king, what? What are you talking about? None of that's true. Here's what happened. Listen to his defense. Listen to the way he, he's going to frame it. He's going to have several points to his defense. Listen to him. He says, number one, or he, he says, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, the captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? He's like, first of all, I didn't even know you guys were in a fight. Like, he's... He's, the, he's, he's your body. He's on your side. He's the captain of your bodyguard. He's, a, he's your son-in-law. He's loyal to you. 
He's highly regarded by everyone, and I thought by you. So what's up with that? Number two, this is normal. This wasn't the first time I inquired for him. This, I do this all the time. He's your guy, and so when, when he comes, he represents you. Was that the first day that I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Number three, let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. I'm not in a conspiracy. I, I, I don't even, why, what? What are you talking about? Like, there's no conspiracy. I don't know anything about this. And the king says, it's time for the verdict. You ready for the verdict? We've heard the case. The defense has spoken, and here is the verdict. You will surely die, Ahimelech. You and your father's whole family. Do you recognize the phrase? Do you hear an echo? One second, Catherine. You will surely die. Do you hear that? What's the echo? That is the garden. What are you quoting? This is the Lord issuing judgment. And Saul is stepping into that role. You, I mean, it is absolutely an echo of the first judgment. Saul is placing himself as God, as if he is wise enough, knows enough. He's heard a defense. The defense is actually spot on, but it's irrelevant to him. Because he is determined. You and your whole family will surely die. Catherine? See, every single, excuse me, every single thing that is said to him was such pure logical wisdom. Here it is. But a man in Saul's condition in his mind, that's just fuel on the fire. That's right. Every good thing about David, no matter what it is, how faithful it is. That's right. And it just takes over. You can just see Satan in there. Just, just I saw, um, I don't know if you've ever done this. I don't recommend you do this, and I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit it, but it has instructive value. So I watched some videos the other day on YouTube of, like, people fighting, of, like, people going crazy in a, in a, in a fast food store or whatever. Have you ever seen these videos of people fighting? Like, there's, there's, the world is voyeuristic, and I, apparently I'm a voyeur as well. So, so... And what was so fascinating to watch these watch people arguing is how single vantage point they are. Samuel will get into some hook, and it's, it's so instructive to watch. Once I'm once I'm committed to a viewpoint, it doesn't matter what you say to me. I am on my viewpoint. You can watch these videos of people like freaking out and just repeating themselves and repeating themselves and repeating themselves, and it goes nowhere. Nothing. You're not going to get in. You're, you're not going to get in. I had a good friend named Kevin. Love Kevin. And he told me that his, his wife would, um, had made the observation, she called it getting hooked. That when something would upset him, he would get hooked. And he just couldn't get unhooked. He's just going to like hammer away at that. And when I watch these videos, I listen to my friend Kevin, then it's just only a half a step away from me. You ever get hooked? You ever get to the point that like you're not to be reasoned with because you know what you know what you know, and so shut up about that? Has that ever happened to any of you? Has it happened to your spouse? Is that, it's easier to see there, isn't it? Right? And that's where Saul is. And that is a bad place to be, right? One of the things that you're going to see, this is where, where Saul and David, again, the contrast of Saul and David. David finds a place of safety in Moab. Somebody comes to him and says, no, 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 you can't do this. Remember the whole thing? You got to leave. He's like, oh, shoot. And he goes, right? He comes to Saul and says, no, 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 you're not seeing this. And he doubles down, Right? Are you the guy 
that when somebody contradicts you, you double down? Or are you the guy that when somebody contradicts you, you're quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? This is what you see in, in the book of Proverbs, probably 15 or nah, 12 to 15 times, the book of Proverbs talks about fools. Well, it talks about fools probably 30 or 40, uh, 70, I just looked this up. Over 70 times the word fool is used in the book of Proverbs. 15-ish of those times, it specifically identifies the fool as the one who will not learn. The fool is the person who, when you come to them with new information, they're like, la, 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 I want to hear it, right? They cannot grow. They cannot change. They're already committed to their thing. And that's what Saul is representing, is that he knows what he knows, and everybody can shut up about it, right? That's scary, because when I get mad, my ears stop working, too. Do yours? So that's a warning to be aware of that phenomena. Yeah, brother. Do you want to jump on that, Bill? Uh, this whole discussion we've been having, you've taught us over the time to, that we tend to identify with the protagonist and the hero. Yeah. And I think, I've been sitting here thinking that maybe I ought to look at Saul and see how I'm like Saul. And Saul, I was thinking after hearing the sermon from Quig this morning, how Saul is like Herod. Yes. I mean, he killed a different group of people, but... but uh, that's exactly right. You tell that story about the fighting, and you're saying we're all just a step away. It's because we're all false. That's exactly right, Bill. Whenever you come to the text, what we want to look at is where's the badness and where's the brokenness, okay? Where's the sin? Where's the suffering? Where's the guiltiness and where's the grief? And Saul is a great big representation of the badness and the brokenness. He's afraid. He's nervous. He's going to lose his kingdom, and so he's freaking out, right? But... The way that he freaks out is that he's going to start killing people and he's going to start, you know, slaughtering people and allowing his vain imaginations to run wild. David is also afraid. But he is, by and large, not always, but usually in his fear, he's going to turn to the Lord instead of like lopping off heads, right? And so when I look at that, I look at that and think, oh, I've been afraid, all kinds of things. Here's two different ways that people might respond in fear. How many times have I been like Saul? What would it be like to either be like David or to be under the protection of one like David? Those are the exact sorts of questions that I think the narrative texts want us to start asking. How do I see my life reflected in these things? Where's my badness and brokenness surfaced? And then what do I do with it? Because I do all these stupid things. And as Quig said this morning, and we'll say again later today, there's no bush to hide under, but there is a fountain of grace to stand beneath, right? We, there better be a fountain of grace, because if not, we're in a mess, right? Okay, so let's keep going, because the clock just never stops. All right, so let's see, where do I want to go? So um, he issues the sentence, right? You're all going to die. And then he says, uh, in verse 17, The king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew that he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. What are they, the, the, they going to do? They don't do it. This is an evil order, okay? We obey the government. We've talked about this during COVID. Romans 13, we obey the government even when it hurts. But we don't obey the government when they're compelling us to sin. This is a great example. These are obedient men. They are under the control of the king. But he's telling them to do a wicked thing. And once you, you can, you can, the king can make me suffer and I just have to drink it. But the king cannot make me sin. And this would be an evil thing. So they're like, we're not doing it. So in verse 18, the king ordered Doeg, 
you turn and strike down the priest. Doeg was the guy that started this whole mess. And so Doeg the Edomite, at which point we should hiss, okay? Doeg's bad. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. Check it out. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And as if that, okay, how many, Ahimelech's one, let's just say Ahimelech's in on the conspiracy that doesn't exist. But let's just say he is. Maybe we kill Ahimelech for being a traitor. He kills 85 men. Do you think 85 of these guys were all like, yeah, give him the bread. Like, <laughs> Saul's losing his mind. And as if that's not enough, look at the next line. Verse 19, he also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and its women and its children and its infants and its cattle and its donkey and its sheep. Does this not pair nicely with your text this morning, Quig? Do you see the madness of sin and this, the they're trying to kill Jesus, but let's wipe out all the children in Bethlehem. And you just watch the way sin just spreads like a pool of blood. And more people are cut up in the madness. Right? John? King Herod was an Edomite. Oh, was he really? I didn't know that. King Herod was an Edomite. Well, that fits. I, had, I, had, I did not know that. Okay? And so the conspiracy grows in his mind. That's, I'm going to look that up, brother. Kelly? As far as killing all the Yeah. It's a total annihilation of the threat. Completely, thoroughly. Eliminate the threat. It seems like he's just taking that same That's right. And that's the name of the game for Saul. Eliminate the threat. However many people have to die, as long as my kingdom is preserved, is worth whatever it costs. Okay? Yep, jump in. It actually is a fulfillment of the prophecy against the priest Eli. Yeah. That the I didn't realize that. Okay, I'll have to look at First Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2, 31. <coughs> it says, Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arms of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your Oh, wow. And so it's fulfilled there. I'll have to look that up. First Samuel 2. I'll, thank you for that. I didn't, I didn't, that was not conscious of that. So I'll take a look at that too. Okay, last thing and then we've got to go. Um, just notice what happens. Very end, verse 20. Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, these, all these people, they escaped and fled to join David. And he told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew that he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who's seeking your life will seek mine also. You'll be safe with me. Okay, what does he mean when he takes responsibility? There's a couple of possibilities here. Does he mean, yeah, I shouldn't have gone there and kind of basically deceived him and eaten the bread. I should have stayed off that. <coughs> or does he mean, dang it, I should have killed Doag when we walked through the door. What do you think? Maybe there's another idea too. Or maybe, him, <coughs> him with me. maybe I should have warned him, taking him with me, that now he's going to be viewed as part of the conspiracy. I don't, the answer is that I, I don't know what it is. I would have initially thought that he was acknowledging that it was kind of shady because I think it was kind of shady what he did. But the commentaries I looked at said, no, what he's really saying is I should have killed Doeg 
we're in a battle now. It's a, it's pitched war, and while while David is never going to lay a hand on Saul, the truth is he's very comfortable killing lots of other people that are not Saul, and so it might be that. And I don't I don't honestly know, but you could just chew on that as we as we talked about kind of the shadiness of of David's uh, not full truthfulness and that whole Ahimelech thing. Maybe he's repenting of that here, or maybe he's just saying I should have killed him. I don't know. You can ponder that and see what you think. But we got to go to church because it's late. All right. Now, next week, next week, we're not going to do 1 Samuel 23, although you're welcome to read it. We're going to take a look at this Bible Project app because I think it would be really helpful to you. So if you want to download the app and have it on your phone, that would be great. Bob, do you need some? It's, it's interesting to see what David says about Doeg in Psalm 52. It's specifically stopping about Almighty Man. Oh, so maybe he should have killed him. You think that's what he's saying? So Psalm, Bob thinks Psalm 52 has uh, data on that. That's all. Wait, what? Can you say my name? Okay, that's it. See you guys.